Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Tennessee made news in 2017 when its state government pledged to make its community colleges free to state residents. The initiative known as Tennessee Promise started as a privately funded program in 2014 and was only available in certain counties. Coming up, we'll hear how Tennessee is able to afford this now statewide program and find out its impact on enrollment and achievement. That's later. We'll also check in on higher education trends across the nation with Lee Gardner, senior reporter at Chronicle of Higher Education. Now, what lessons can Connecticut learn from other states? That's coming up. First, we invited Mark Ojakian back to the show to learn how the state's colleges and university system is proceeding with a consolidation plan to save millions. Just yesterday, the Board of Regents unanimously approved Mr. Ojakian's new plan to consolidate the community college system. He's here in studio to answer our questions and yours about this revised plan and next steps. You can join the conversation, 860-275-7266. Email where we live at wmpr.org. And you can find us on Twitter at where we live. We're also on Facebook Live. So ask a question in the comments line below the video. Again, I want to welcome back to the show Mark Ojakian, president of the Connecticut State Colleges and Universities System. Mark, thanks for coming in. Good morning. It's a pleasure to be back. So we now have a new plan that was adopted by the Board of Regents uh, on Thursday. So tell us about this plan plan and the fact that the merger is still going to happen, but not right away. Correct. So so this is basically a revised uh, version of the original plan. Um, and the big differences um, are a couple. Uh, we're extending the time um, where we will become a singly accredited institution to 2023 uh, to give us a little more time to establish a foundation um, for the future. And we're also taking um, a closer, more gradual and deliberate look at aligning our curricula across all 12 institutions. We will begin that process this fall and end it in in 2021. So we're taking a slower, a more gradual approach, but the basic tenets of the plan will remain the same. We will move towards a singly accredited institution. In the short term, we will Um, put the institutions in a regional configuration. Uh, We will continue to um, provide more student-facing services on campuses. Uh, We will continue um, towards student success initiatives. We will continue to share services across our campuses and reinvest those dollars in much-needed faculty and academic advisors. Let's break down uh, this plan a little further. Uh, let's start off by this uh, idea to regionalize uh, the 12 community colleges into the distinct regions. Tell us how you decided to break those up and the leadership structure that we put in place for these three regions. Well, the, 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 let's start with the leadership structure first. There will be three regional presidents that will be selected um, through a search process. We will begin that process this summer. Uh, We will do a national search, um, but clearly higher education and community college experience in Connecticut 
um, will be a key as we look to those new leaders. You know, we believe that um, putting uh, institutions into regions allow for a couple things in the short term. Uh, to share more administrative services across those regions, to align more closely with the workforce investment boards in those regions, which are critical as we look to train workers for the future. And also, we believe that we can begin some uh, transfer processes that are different than currently exist within that region so it's more seamless for students if they want to go from one institution to the other. So we believe that by taking a look at where the students come from that go to each individual institution, the enrollment at the individual colleges, as well as the demographics of the entire region, we were able to select a regional approach and put the colleges into those specific regions. So starting in 2019, these three regional uh, presidents will preside over the region. That's correct. But then you'll also still have um, a president at each community college? And we, will have, we will have a chief executive officer at each individual college. We will, as you may know, maintain the individual accreditations of the 12 community colleges until we merge further down the road. Those institutions that currently have presidents will retain their presidents. As presidents have departed and continue to depart, we have um, designated the new title for a campus leader as chief executive officer. That allows us in the short term to meet the accreditation requirements of NEASC, and then in the longer term, set the course for how we are going to configure the new institution. Each institution needs to have, by NEASC guidelines, a chief executive officer. Some cases they'll be called CEO, some cases they'll be called president. When you say NEAS, it's the New England Association of Schools and Colleges, That's this correct. accrediting body. That's correct. That originally when they looked at the plan uh, put forth by the Board of Regents and yourself to consolidate, at one time, all 12 community colleges into one single community college of Connecticut. That was one of their concerns. They were worried about the, the leadership structure and trying to make sure that um, services were um, still going to be met fully for each campus. They had, they had two concerns when they issued their two primary concerns when they issued their response. And if you remember correctly, their response was not that this could not happen, but the manner in which we should, I think, proceed. The, the two things that they pointed to was that the timeline was a little bit aggressive. Um, we originally intended to phase this in, but do it by 2021. So we're extending the, the out year by, by two or three uh, years. The second thing was they wanted us to take more time in terms of the academic uh, planning process that is encompassed in Students First. I think the revised plan addresses those. Um, we have kept them informed as we have revised the plan. We continue to have conversations and we will go back to them at the point in time when we are looking for a single accreditation. We don't need to go um, and seek any sort of approval in the short term. So to make sure our listeners understand, these three regional presidents will be hired by spring of 2019. Uh, they'll be alongside a, a CEO, a CFO, a chief academic officer. Then when you attempt to merge uh, the Connecticut Community Colleges into one single institution at, in 2023, will those regional presidents still be there? That's correct. I mean, the, the original plan was to have one college, 
with one president, one CFO, and one chief academic officer, and then have the regional presidents, and to have um, a more centralized approach at the college and, and less of duplication on each campus. For right now, we're going to keep some of the functional um, areas on each campus. Eventually, we will move that to a more centralized approach. What have you been hearing from students, faculty, and staff about this new plan? Uh, because it, you know, when you hear about more administrative positions being created, sometimes there is skepticism of why that's needed and the idea that these are positions that are probably going to be paying pretty well. Well, in, in, in the plan, we actually reduce overall positions within the system. Now, if, if you notice, the savings um, target that we had initially put in at $23 million um, has been reduced to 17 for a couple of reasons. One is because we still need to retain very robust uh, fiscal offices at each individual campus, whereas at one institution that would be centralized and there wouldn't be as many positions. And secondly, in the short term, we are, we are retaining presidents and presidents' offices. Uh, once we start to move towards the one college, you'll see those savings increase. Uh, but I still continue to believe that you know, $17 million is not anything to, um, to make light of. But the, the real purpose behind the initial proposal and this proposal is about student success. It's about making sure that we are removing the obstacles that we currently have in place that make it difficult for students to enter an institution, stay in an institution, and complete in a timely fashion. Because when they don't complete in a timely fashion, it A, costs them more money if they're paying themselves, or B, they get frustrated and they just decide not to continue their education. So in the short term, what we're looking to do is one application, one financial aid package, one catalog, much more consistent website. We want to make it easier for students to access their education. And th the other piece is we're not just cutting expenses. Part of the experience we've had where we've had two pilots in Connecticut where we've asked one president to oversee two institutions. Just last year, each of those models has saved $1 million by just sharing services across campuses. Those were able to be reinvested into student academic advisors, which are sorely needed on each campus because the average right now of advisors to students at our community colleges is one advisor to 923 students. This is where we live. Uh, you're hearing Marco Jakian, president of the Connecticut State Un Colleges and Universities System. Uh, we're learning more about this new plan that was adopted by the Board of Regents to consolidate uh, Connecticut's community colleges uh, with the plan by 2023 uh, to merge um, them into one single accredited institution. This is a change from an original proposal that had called uh, for uh, the timeline to be uh, much quicker, also with projected savings of $23 million versus the uh, the savings of this new plan is estimated to save about $17 million. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. You can also find us on Facebook Live today. If you have a question, put it in the comments field below uh, the video. Um, I wanted to go back to uh, the, uh, when you said the original purpose and, uh, you know, focusing in on students first, because enrollment, retention, and completion has been an issue that you've seen. Are there worrying trends? And that's why you want to try to, to nip it in the bud? 
Correct. I think I think not only in Connecticut, but I think nationally, you've seen um, enrollment numbers be an issue, um, and there's a couple of reasons for that. Uh, one is the number of high school graduates um, is declining everywhere. And secondly, I think, um, especially in public institutions, there tends to be competition among individuals within the same system as opposed to collaboration. And so what we're trying to do is to provide a much more strategic enrollment management direction for all of the institutions uh, to make sure we're taking advantage of every untapped market out there. So not only traditional uh, high school students, but let's let's adapt our institutions to be more friendly to adult learners. Um, let's take a look at those um, po- segments of the population that have felt that they could not go to college. Uh, we have not done a good enough job at reaching out to underrepresented groups um, in our state and and encouraging them to go to school. And the the retention issue is even more critical, I think, than the enrollment issue. You can get people in the, do- in the door, but what do you do with students once they're in the door? And I think our guided pathways approach, where you're assigned advisors right from the beginning, you are encouraged to pick a major area of study early in your um, academic um, career, gives you an opportunity not only to go seamlessly through the two-year school, have a better chance of transferring to a four-year school if you choose, um, and not waste credits. With this new plan, again, that is going to be uh, moving forward uh, for spring of 2019, can you commit that there will be no tuition hikes between between now and 2023? I I cannot commit there will be no tuition hikes between now and 2023. The board adopted last year a two-year plan. Uh, which raises tuition once again this fall, um, a very modest increase. And we have no intention of changing that schedule. We wanted students and their families to understand what their financial commitment was going um, to be. One of the other purposes behind this is to try to not only um, save money, to find economies of scale and, and leverage best practices, but to be able to not consider putting the financial burden of the state's um, underfunding um, of higher education in Connecticut on the backs of our students. I'll never commit to something I can't promise. Um, We will probably have to look at tuition um, as a way to close the budget gap. But if we were to take right now um, and increase tuition, um, by the amount it would take to close the budget deficit that we were given by the legislature, um, we would have to raise it by over 100 percent at the colleges, and I'm not going to do that. Can you hear me? Oh, now we can there hear we me. <laughs> um, uh, to give our listeners some context in terms of appropriations. Oh, there we are again. For some reason, we're having technical issues with our, our microphone. But again, I wanted it to give... <laughs> Um, this must be deliberate, Mark. No. <laughs> but to give our listeners some context, there was a 2017 State Higher Education Executive Officers Association report. It found that Connecticut saw the largest decrease in state appropriations from the previous year of any other state, a 12% decrease. And since the recession, state funding per student is down 19%. Uh, so this doesn't give uh, students confidence that um, that they're not going to continue to see tuition hikes in the future. Um, so does that impact the buy-in for why you need to do this type of merger? Well, I think, I, I think this is one 
you know, one piece of a larger puzzle, um, the Students First initiative. Even though we've seen our funding decrease and we need to continue to advocate up at the legislature, I, I think there's becoming a recognition up there about the value that the CSU system provides to the state of Connecticut. Um, our students, 84,000 of them, um, that are in credit-bearing courses, 94% um, are from Connecticut, and 85% stay in Connecticut once they graduate. These are Connecticut citizens. And I think we are starting to see a recognition that uh, the legislature needs to invest more into public higher education. We um, are very proud of the fact that our students um, are showcased up at the Capitol every year to tell their stories to policymakers that make uh, funding decisions. Um, I think they understand that fringe benefit rates are going up. Um, our fringe benefit rates uh, beginning July 1 will be going up 13 percent. Um, this is nothing that we have control over. It's just the general increase in, in, in fringe benefit accounts. So, so I think on both sides of the aisle, there's been a recognition. Uh, I talk to both sides of the aisle because um, it's important to have every legislator understand what we're trying to do and what decisions they make will impact the future of our students. You can join our conversation, 860-275-7266. We're getting a Facebook question from Bill, uh, who writes, most large organizations find the best way to save money is to flatten their structure. He wants to know, how's adding another management layer, in addition to increasing the size of central board of regent staff, going to save money? So let's actually tackle that second part. Yeah. Is, the, is the size of the central BOR staff increasing? In, no. Okay. And, and since, since 2011, when the, when the merger first occurred, the, uh, the staffing levels at the system office have been reduced by about a third, which is a big reduction in an office um, where, for example, um, I think 97% are in collective bargaining un units. Um, and as you know, there's a CBAC provision that gives everybody a job protection through 2021. So we, we have streamlined our operation. And as a matter of fact, even under my uh, tenure, we have seen that um, even uh, reduced further. So if you look at the overall structure that we are proposing, um, there, there are less people in the system. It is a flatter organization because you don't have the same administrative functions, <clears throat> excuse me, and the same layers of administration at each of the 12 institutions. Those are captured more in a centralized fashion. And as I, as I indicated, we've seen where we've had leaders over multiple campuses, we've seen that um, yield great fiscal results and also great results in terms of um, you know, sharing other kinds of opportunities. And I think we need to continue on that um, approach. So go to our website and you can see the new plan. You can look at the financial analysis. You can see the numbers. They're real. They've been, um, they're not fake numbers. It's not fake news. And, um, and I'm happy to entertain any specific questions after people have an opportunity to really understand, you know, the information. We'll share uh, the link to that report uh, at where we live on Twitter. I wanted to go back to uh, cutting these 117 uh, positions. Uh, what positions are we talking about? Well, I mean, we're, we're basically talking about um, streamlining a lot of the, um, the 
the administrative positions on each campus and centralizing some of those, for example, in human resources, in institutional research, in information technology. We're going to be streamlining a lot of those, uh, those, those areas. And as we move towards a single accreditation, we're no longer going to have, you know, individual presidents in that same salary scale um, leading an institution. So we're, we're modifying that approach. Um, and we're also taking a look down the road at when there's one institution, we will have a budget officer working for the college and less of a budget presence at each of the campuses. You're also going to hire, uh, I believe, two new positions to help with funding streams. Correct. One looking at a development officer, another looking specifically at increasing enrollment. That's correct. There's going to be two new positions um, that are going to be hired in, in the interim into my office with the intention of transitioning to the single college office once that um, accreditation um, occurs. It's critical that we not only cut expenses but increase revenue. And we do that through a much more strategic enrollment management strategy that all 12 of the institutions um, will be a part of. That will not only increase our enrollment numbers but will increase our retention numbers. And the second position is to help us with a lot of the grant funding that is out there in the field. Right now, campuses don't have the capability because of staffing levels of having um, specific robust grant offices. There's a lot of public and a lot of private grant opportunities out there that we should be taking advantage of. Katie on Facebook wants to know what happens to curriculum, which is the domain of faculty. Faculty is involved in the curriculum development. So what we're doing is, starting with the general education curriculum, uh, there's a committee, a very robust committee of elected and appointed representatives from faculty that are working in each discipline uh, to come up with, a, with, an, with an alignment um, across those disciplines where it makes sense. General education should be aligned at each of the 12 institutions. You shouldn't have to, when you transfer from one to the other or take a course from one to the other, have to repeat general education. Um, so we are aligning that curricula, working with our faculty to make sure that um, distinct programs and nationally accredited programs stay differentiated, but that areas where there can be some commonality of curricula, that we do that by 2021, and that is led by faculty. Just a couple of minutes left. Uh, Marco Jakin, again, is president of the Connecticut State Colleges and Universities System. You know, I want, I'm curious about um, how it will be, is it, has it, is it being made easier for students who want to transfer to a uh, state university from the community college? Is that also part of this plan? Well, that's, that's, that's part of an overall approach that has been actually um, uh, been in place now for the past year. Over the last five years, what we call our Transfer and Articulation Pathway Program was, at, was driven by faculty where they came up with in 25 major areas of study what those courses needed to be to transfer seamlessly. And this year was the first year we saw a class graduating from the community colleges that was going seamlessly into the state universities. The interesting thing that I found was that the transfer was not seamless from one community college to another. And so while we have made great progress in a transfer between our community colleges and our universities, we need to do the same thing across 12 community colleges.
Um, again, we're talking with Marco Jakian. Uh, I'm curious, though, you know, we're going to have a, a new governor. We're going to find that out uh, in November. What does that mean uh, for your role as head of the state colleges and universities uh, system? Is this a job that you'd want to stick around to do, if asked? Well, first of all, I, I, just to make it clear, my, my, my role and my position is not coterminous with the governor. Um, I'm appointed by the Board of Regents. Um, I have a contract with the Board of Regents through um, the end of uh, 2020. Um, I started this plan because I believe we need to do it for students, and I intend to be here as long as I need to to make sure that we're on a, a, a very positive path forward. Elections matter. Um, I can't predict the future. Um, this is an election for once in, in a very long time that I'm watching from a distance um, as opposed to being somewhat involved in when I worked for the governor. Um, but I have made myself available to candidates from both sides of the aisle to talk about our system, to talk about our students, to talk about our challenges, to talk about our needs, and I'll continue to do that when there's a new governor. So with the contract, you're in this job till 2020? Yes. Um, before we head to break, and again, the focus of today's show is looking at uh, this plan, again, to consolidate the Connecticut State Community Colleges uh, merger by uh, 2023. Uh, we're going to be looking at trends uh, in other states coming up. But because you head up uh, CSCU, I did want to ask you about a very disturbing story reporting from Central Connecticut a State University student newspaper finding uh, widespread allegations of sexual misconduct and harassment by a theater professor, I believe. I believe that theater professor is now on leave. This sexual misconduct took place over 10 years, was reported to the administration. This professor got a particular warning. What is your response to this very disturbing story? And how do you keep this kind of uh, incidents from happening at other state universities? Again, it was reporting by a student newspaper that made this story come to light. Well, first of all, anybody who knows me knows that, that my position on this is that any sort of um, sexual misconduct or harassment or assault is unacceptable and should be dealt with immediately. Uh, I was not in my position when this happened. President Toro has done an incredible job of being open, accessible, and transparent about what she's doing uh, to make sure that this incident is dealt with and that this does not happen again. Um, I've done you know, many speaking engagements and public service announcements to our um, students about the um, the Me Too movement and that I will not tolerate um, any sort of behavior like this. She has taken the, the corrective steps in terms of doing an investigation. Uh, we hired a third party um, to come in and do an investigation of this situation as well as the culture and climate that existed because this does not happen in isolation. There needs to be a culture and a climate that allows this to happen. And anybody who let this happen uh, if it was reported to them and they did not respond, needs to be held accountable. This is about doing the right thing for the students so that they have a safe and, and friendly environment to go to school. I continue to work with Dr. Toro on this investigation, and I continue to, be, be, to make my thoughts clear that this is unacceptable and people will be held accountable by the president and by me. Um, spe talking specifically about what's happening at the Central Connecticut State University, but what about your other state colleges and universities? Um, are you putting in any new types of structures, reporting mechanisms to make sure that climate doesn't happen in another institution? Yes, absolutely. We we have taken we have taken a look at not only what what is our requirements 
by board policy and state law, but what do we be what do we need to be doing differently? And so there's been a lot of directive sent. There's been lots of conversations that have happened. People understand that there needs to be a reporting relationship in place where people feel comfortable coming forward because in many cases, as was the case, I believe, in this incident at, at Central, even if people did come forward, they felt that their that their issues were falling on deaf ears and that the culture was not going to allow them to get the remedy that they deserved. So we are being very, very proactive in this area, and you're going to be seeing more coming from me um, in the coming months. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Again, Marco Jakian in studio with us today, president of the Connecticut Colleges and Universities System. We hear about the latest plan. We just heard about the latest plan to consolidate the state's community colleges. But we also wanted to find out how are other states approaching their higher education systems. So after the break, we're going to be joined by a senior reporter from the Chronicle of Higher Education. And we'll take your calls, your questions, your tweets. The phone phone number 860-275-7266. We're also on Facebook Live today. Uh, add a question or comment below the video and we'll be back shortly. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. We've been talking about the latest proposal to merge Connecticut's community colleges. The plan approved unanimously by the Board of Regents on Thursday pushes off a merger until 2023. Instead, starting in 2019, the plan calls for breaking up the 12 community colleges into three regions. The plan's projected to save $17 million by eliminating more than 100 positions, but there will be some new positions added too, like three new regional presidents. And to help with funding, a new vice president of enrollment manager and a new development officer will also be hired. Now, given the focus on Connecticut's higher education system over the last year, we wanted to know how other states are making changes to their community colleges, their state schools. So joining us uh, on the phone now is Lee Gardner, senior reporter at the Chronicle of Higher Education. Lee, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, and our listeners can also join at 860-275-7266. You can tweet us at, on Twitter at Where We Live. You can also find us on Facebook Live today. Uh, Lee, uh, we were just talking a lot about uh, Connecticut's plan to consolidate, but you've been doing some reporting on what other states have attempted, including Georgia and Maine. So I wanted to start off with uh, Georgia first. Uh, I believe there was a, a merger back in 2011. Tell us what Georgia attempted to do. Well, Georgia is actually still in the process of doing this. It's a, an ambitious plan, um, I believe, so far that they have merged 14 of their uh, state four-year and two-year institutions into new combined institutions. Um, and uh, it's, I think that arguably it's, it's gone pretty well, at least at some institutions. I think at, at other institutions there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of strain, uh, at least at the level of academic departments and you know, students, you know, having to worry about which mascot is going to make the cut and uh, things like that. Uh, when you talk about uh, the, the the process is still uh, in place, it started back in 2011. Um, so what was, uh, I guess, some of the reasons behind? Was it uh, to save money or were they seeing some other reasons such as trying to increase enrollment or improving the, the curriculum? Just curious about uh, the reasons behind the merger. Well, you know, the chancellor uh, did 
say uh, in his remarks at the time that it was intended to, uh, you know, serve the student, the states, the students of the state better, and also at a lesser cost. Um, at the same time, you know, if you look at the actual savings from the mergers over that time, they have not been uh, super significant. That is, uh, you know, the institutions may be more efficient now, and you know that may, that's arguable, probably depending on uh, where you look. Um, and some money has been saved. Uh, but it's really not that much money. Uh, I think uh, in Georgia, it's uh, less than one percent of their annual operating budget was saved. You know, when you when you consolidate institutions or merge institutions, you do end up, you know, losing some administrative positions. You do end up, um, you know, uh, uh, making you know HR all run out of one office, which saves you some money on staff. But it's pretty much all people, and it's pretty much all administration. You know, if you have uh, two campuses, uh, even if you call them one, you still have, you know, uh, two sets of students who need two sets of teachers to, to teach those classes. You need, uh, you know, two sets of campus security. You need two sets of yards mode and and uh, two sets of uh, utility bills to pay. So um, the savings from consolidations, the financial savings, are typically not that great uh, when you look at the, the system scale. That's something that uh, some faculty and students have raised here in Connecticut. They question uh, whether uh, the savings that have been projected really will uh, come to be. I'm curious, in, in Georgia, uh, Lee Gardner, uh, what was the response from faculty and staff and students? Um, well, you know, as far as I understand, um, uh, let's, look, let's take the example of Georgia uh, State, uh, Georgia State University, uh, which is a four-year institution, rather large institution merged with a two-year institution, Georgia Perimeter, uh, and it's now the, the new institution is known as Georgia State. Um, I think arguably that's been uh, a win for the system, it's been a win for the institutions, and ultimately it's been a win for the students. Uh, it's made a much bigger institution, it's now the biggest, uh, it's 60-something thousand students, it's the biggest uh, uh, public institution in the state. Um, and uh, but you know uh, the the community college students uh, uh, have benefited from having uh, the four-year institutions best practices, um, and they have an even better articulation. I mean, they're basically already students at the at the four-year university. So I think that you know you could look at that and say that that's been a win for the state and and a win for the students. Uh, I think it remains to be seen at other institutions uh, how that's going to work out. I've heard stories about. You know, if you're merging two different departments, say two different history departments, and, you know, they each have different standards, they each have different expectations, they may have different philosophies of how they do what they do. Uh, and I understand that that's uh, led to some tensions at, the, at some institutions. Um, I think a lot of states, not just Georgia, um, are looking at this not only as a way to save money, but a way to be more efficient uh, in their academics. Uh, I know that in Georgia, um, you know, several leaders have talked to me about the idea that instead of, you know, three or four different colleges having, say, a Mandarin program, eventually it might make sense to just have one uh, and then have students from across the state, uh, you know, who want to take those courses study online through that one program. Um, but I think this is all still a work in progress. You know, the, the, the saving of money uh, and the consolidation of operations is kind of a simple problem um, in some respects. Uh, 
combining academic programs and and dealing with the accreditation for that, I think, is the the bigger long-term challenge. You're listening to Where We Live and watching us on Facebook Live. Uh, With us is Lee Gardner, senior reporter at Chronicle of Higher Education. Also in studio with me is Mark Ojekian, president of the Connecticut State Colleges and Universities System. I wanted to ask Mark uh, to respond to what uh, Lee has been talking about in terms of of the difficulty at times to bring together uh, different cultures on campuses and how you saw that when you heard from faculty, students, and staff over the last year in the Students First Plan. Yeah, I think I think it's always difficult when when you try to change um, uh, uh, things and a, and a culture. Um, you know, we have the twelve community colleges here in Connecticut in a very small state, and I think our effort is to try to rather than merge curricula, is to align it among the twelve. Uh, we've already done a very good job of aligning the transfer opportunities between our two year and our four year colleges. And under new leaders, we've seen better collaboration between our universities and our colleges. We have some pilots that we're working on that help students that aren't quite ready to go to a four-year institution, go to a two-year for a year or so, and be able to seamlessly transfer right back to the four-year institution. So every, every state has a unique set of challenges. Every state has a unique set of opportunities. And I think, for example, uh, we've been following Georgia. We, we reached out to, to folks to have that conversation. Um, the, I think one of the big differences between Connecticut and Georgia is that in Connecticut, um, the, the workforce is unionized. And while I, I'm a big proponent of collective bargaining, it does make, um, make it a little more difficult just to say this is the direction that we are going in. Uh, Lee Gardner, I wanted to go back to you because you've also done reporting on Maine. Um, again, Maine and Connecticut has uh, have some differences uh, in terms of extreme aging population up there, though one of the similarities is falling enrollment and the number of high school graduates. Uh, tell us about what Maine has attempted to do. Uh, the, the chancellor of the Maine system has uh, uh, an interesting idea um, that he's calling one university. Um, and Rather than um, merging all of the institutions uh, together, he's trying to create a system in which uh, the universities retain their individual identity and leadership, but they uh, collaborate and cooperate at a much higher level than uh, they ever have before. And and if it works, uh, it'll be at a much higher level than you know most uh, other systems or any other systems in other states, at least that I'm familiar with. Um, and, you know, part of that is, is they've already consolidated some, you know, some HR and procurement and some other back office functions. Um, they're leaving the individual leadership at the institutions uh, alone, but they are working on this academic piece uh, and trying to, um, you know, work toward having uh, common curricula, uh, easily transferable classes. Uh, that is, you know, if you take a class, you know, at Presque Isle, uh, it, it will count exactly the same as if you took it at Bangor. Uh, you know, among the challenges there are that uh, accreditation doesn't necessarily uh, stretch to cover that. Uh, you know, one example that was given to me in Maine is they have a cybersecurity program that is taught across three different institutions. Um, you know, the faculty at one have a piece of it, the faculty at another have a piece, and, and so on. Um, and, you know, they're very proud of this program. The problem is that it presents all sorts of uh, challenges. You know, if, if a student is taking that, that majoring in that, you know, do they register at this institution? Uh, if they are taking it technically from this institution, 
you know, what happens if the differential between the different fees at the different institutions, the different tuition, uh, how do they justify that? Not to mention the fact that accreditation uh, typically does not, uh, you know, it doesn't accredit systems. It doesn't accredit uh, programs in the sense that we're talking about it. It accredits institutions. So, uh, you know, I think the main plan is ambitious and probably necessary to meet some of the challenges that they have. Um, but they're sort of treading into uh, to uncharted territory with this. Uh, and I think they're being careful not to uh, do anything that's going to upset their accreditation. Uh, again, some of the the, uh, the procedures and proposals in the main system sound similar to what a Connecticut is attempting or uh, wanted to, to try to do. I believe, Mark, that did, did Connecticut consult with Maine and when you were looking at the Students First plan? Uh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, Jim Page and I have become fast friends um, because we're dealing with some of the same challenges. Um, and, you know, as, as I think... Um, We've just heard accreditation continues to, you know, be an issue in any sort of new direction you want to take. And um, he's absolutely right. Uh, Systems are not accredited. And so that's a challenge and a conversation we're having with our New England accreditors about how can we maybe look at things differently and maybe how can accreditation be viewed a little bit more flexible um, to continue the high quality and academic rigor of our programs, but fit more into the needs of our of our institutions today. That's Marco Jakian, president of the Connecticut State Colleges and University System on Where We Live. I want to thank Lee Gardner, senior reporter at Chronicle of Higher Education. We'll tweet out links to his stories. Lee, thank you for your time. Happy to do it. This is Where We Live. I'm Lucy Nalpathanchel. Coming up, have you heard about Tennessee's program that makes community colleges and technical schools there free to residents? How did they do it? After the break, we'll learn more about Tennessee Promise. And do you think this kind of proposal could ever make its way to Connecticut? Join our conversation, 860-275-7266. Find us on Facebook Live and at Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy Nalbathanchel. Now, how did Tennessee become the first state in the nation to make its community colleges free to its residents? And how's the program changing the number of adults there with higher education degrees? To help answer our questions and yours, Emily Siner joins us. She's news director at Nashville Public Radio, who frequently reports on higher education in Tennessee. Emily, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Uh, we've only got about uh, under 10 minutes, but there's a lot to talk about with Tennessee Promise. Uh, but how did it come to be in the state? So Tennessee Promise uh, started as kind of a pilot in a couple of counties in East Tennessee. Um, and it started as a, a, just a private organization that a businessman there started to kind of uh, just recruit philanthropy from people and send students there to community college for free. Uh, The governor of Tennessee then adopted that program and made it statewide. He proposed it as part of his State of the State address in 2014, and it really happened pretty quickly after that. I mean, it passed the legislature that spring, and the first class of Tennessee Promise students went to community college the next fall. Um, I think it's important to note also that this started as a statewide program specifically for graduating high school seniors who were going into college the next year. Um, It's just this fall expanding to all or most Tennessee residents who have not completed their college degree in the past. So that's kind of a new experiment that we don't have a lot of good data on, but we do have a couple years of data on the 
Tennessee Promise students who were coming directly out of high school. And what does that data tell you about um, in terms of, of, of joining in on or enrolling in a community college? And have they uh, stuck with the program? Are they graduating? Um, yeah, it's interesting. So the the dropout rate for community col- for sorry for Tennessee Promise students is not a whole lot better than previous years of community college students. But what is a lot better is the, the number of students who've finished their degrees. So rather than just sticking around for several extra semesters, they're going through the program faster. Um, what you found with the first class of Tennessee Promise students that graduated either last spring or last fall, um, a higher percentage of them completed and got a degree or certificate. Many of them transferred to four-year schools. So it kind of depends what number you look at. And we only have one class, basically, so far that's gone through the entire program. Um, So, you know, it's not by any means yet. But it seems like there's some promising information as uh, a pun that many people in the state like to use. So the goal is to get, what, 55% of of the population to have um, higher education degrees? Yeah, so when the governor of Tennessee, Bill Haslam, pitched this program, um, it was part of this larger initiative called Drive to 55. The idea, as he said, is to make sure that um, more than half of the adult population has either degrees or credentials, um, and that can apply to shorter uh, programs through our technical colleges that might not actually be full degrees, but they still are credentialed in an industry. Um, And he was pitching it as not really a higher education initiative specifically, although of course it is, but more to um, attract businesses to the state. His argument was that our current population is just not uh, skilled or certified enough to attract businesses in the next decade to come to Tennessee. That's a huge priority for the state legislature here. Um, And so he was pitching it to the state legislature as uh, a way to create a more skilled population for the sake of bringing businesses. Emily Siner is news director at Nashville Public Radio. Uh, We're learning more about Tennessee Promise, uh, this program that expanded just recently throughout the state of Tennessee, allowing adults who don't have a previous associate's or bachelor's degree to go to a Tennessee community college for free. I'm curious how the state's paying for all of this, Emily. Yeah, that's the question that um, I think every state is interested in. So um, it comes from the lottery, uh, money from our our state lottery. A lot of the money comes from interest on the lottery endowment, and uh, the other money is coming just from annual revenue from the lottery. Um, And in Tennessee, the lottery funding is going to a bunch of different education programs, and they decided to divert some of that into this fund and also just take some of the money that was unused. So uh, I think the state was fortunate and that it had this pot of money that it could use. And it also made it a much easier sell for lawmakers that they weren't taking it from um, the operational budget. A pot of money that uh, doesn't need to to pay down a a big pension liability like the state of Connecticut. I was curious, I wanted to get Marco Jakian's uh, take on this specific program. Again, president of Connecticut State Colleges and Universities here. Um, You know, there's uh, talk of, again, we're trying to open this third casino, but that money, again, the legislature decides how that money is going to be used if we get any additional revenue, and often it doesn't go to higher education. That's correct. I, I am old enough to remember that when the lottery was first instituted here in Connecticut, it was uh, designated, uh, the proceeds of the lottery were designated for education, uh, both K through 12 and higher education. 
And over time, as the state has needed more money, uh, those dedicated funds have disappeared and have just gone into the general fund. So even though there's a third casino getting ready uh, to open, um, it's my uh, expectation that that money will just go into the general fund and then the legislature working with um, the governor will decide where that money is is going uh, to go. Can, I just have a question. Uh, can I ask a question? Sure. Uh, so my question is, is, is the money the last dollar in after you have used in Tennessee any sort of Pell Grants, any sort of institutional financial aid, or is there just a blanket amount offered to students to cover uh, the the tuition and fee cost? Yeah, that's a great question because that's sort of pivotal to how the state is paying for this too. Um, it is a last dollar scholarship. So as part of applying to Tennessee Promise, you have to fill out a FAFSA form, a, an application for federal financial aid. And I mean, about almost half of the students get their tuition fully paid by the federal government by Pell Grants. So for them, the state doesn't have to put in anything. Um, I think their, their number is that 40% of the students, they don't actually pay for. But a lot of those students may not have been applying to school or applying for financial aid before because they didn't realize that they were eligible or they didn't understand how the process worked. Um, so it is definitely very reliant on Pell Grant money and on other scholarships. Um, and then the state just comes in and pays the last dollar. Oh, we've, we're almost out of time. We wanted to, uh, Ashley from Winstead has been holding, but we want to just paraphrase her question. She wanted to know more, Mark, about uh, the number of non-traditional students that are enrolling in community colleges. Uh, and how are you addressing uh, trying to reach them as well as trying to address the skills gap here in Connecticut? I, I would say that most of our students that are coming to our community colleges now are non-traditional. Um, you know, the, the, the goal of, um, of students going right out of high school um, is not what it, what it should be. Um, and what we're trying to do in terms of addressing the skill gaps is providing more short-term certificate programs where students can come in for about 10 months, in, or 10, uh, 10 months and get a certificate in a certified area. We're going to have to leave it there. Marco Jakin, thank you for coming in. We You're appreciate welcome. it. Also, Emily Sider, News Director at Nashville Public Radio. Thank you, Emily. You're welcome. Thank you. Today's show produced by Carmen Baskoff. I'm Lucy Nalbethanchel. Thanks for listening.